2: I see what you're up to there, Milwaukee, and I got to say, it seems like a bad idea. Milwaukee, the city government there, is trying to shut down a gas station. 35th Hometown is the name of the gas station because someone, without the permission of the gas station's owner, filmed a down-and-dirty gonzo porn in the aisles of the convenience store chunk of the gas station at 3 o'clock in the morning. An amateur porn actor named Frederick Allen entered the store in the middle of the night with a female companion. Jalissa Castrodale, she's a reporter advice, not the female companion, a reporter advice, to be perfectly clear. Jalissa Castrodale says that Alan, who is wearing a bathrobe, dances around in the video, strokes himself for the camera, and then shrugs off his bathrobe, gets on his knees, and bones the woman from behind, looking over his shoulder into the camera, quote, with an expression that says, Can you believe I'm doing this beside the Starburst? The video posted to Pornhub has been viewed more than 700,000 times. And a couple of dozen people, with nothing better to do after enjoying that video, signed a petition calling for 35th Hometown to be closed. And an elected official, an actual elected official, with nothing better to do after watching the video, took up their cause. And what Milwaukee District 7 Alderman Khalif Rainey told Fox 6 Now News had me convinced that this was a comedy piece out of The Onion at first— But nope, it's real. Alderman Rainey, who is leading the push to put the guy who owns 35th Hometown out of business, actually said this into a microphone. Under my watch, I won't allow it. Keep in mind, it was filmed right next to the chips and across from the sunflower seeds. Oh no, those poor chips... And won't someone please think of the sunflower seeds? I want to make it clear that I do not rise now in defense of Frederick Allen, amateur porn star. He's a convicted felon, Castordale reports advice, who's been charged with second-degree sexual assault of a child after a woman told him her 15-year-old daughter appeared in two of his videos. Those charges were dropped after a witness refused to testify. So, yeah, Allen doesn't sound like a good dude. But you know what I found in less than five minutes of searching on Pornhub. Amateur porn videos shot on buses and subways. Gonzo porn videos shot in big box stores, in airports, in theme parks, in airplanes, in Airbnbs. Amateur porn shot at world-famous tourist sites. I didn't find anyone getting Eiffel Towered at the Eiffel Tower, but I did find the Eiffel Tower. And amateur porn shot in so many hotel rooms, recognizable hotel chains. And in one case, a porn shot in my favorite hotel in the world. Quick shout-out to the Maritime Hotel, my home away from home in New York City's Chelsea neighborhood. There's also some gay porn out there that was shot, or so its makers claim, in the Vatican. Basically, wherever people go with their genitals and their smartphones, and there's really nowhere people don't go with their genitals and their smartphones, someone at some point has made a porno there and uploaded it to the internet. So shutting down places where someone shot a little gonzo porn, yeah, let's just say that seems like the slipperiest of slopes to me. A pretty luby slope, in fact. Because if the whole world goes the way of Milwaukee, if officials start closing down businesses where people made porn videos without the permission of the owners, to say nothing of shutting down airlines and hotel chains and world religions, pretty soon there won't be anywhere for people to get gas or get a bed or get religion. Personally... Console porn shot in gas stations? I don't want to see that. Not interested. But do you know what I would like to see? What I am personally interested in seeing? Milwaukee District 7 Alderman Khalif Rainey's internet browser history. In fact, I'd like to see the internet browser histories of every member of the Milwaukee Common Council who voted to revoke the business license of Kalwant Dellen, the owner of the 35th hometown gas station. Because I'd like to know where the porn they've been watching was shot. City officials, three aldermen, justified their decision to strip Dylan of his business license because he was in the store when it happened and didn't call the police. Which leads me to believe that no one on the Milwaukee Common Council has ever worked in a gas station or is following the news very closely. Customers do all sorts of weird shit in gas stations, and the goal of everyone behind the counter on the graveyard shift is just to get through that shift alive confronting a dancing man in a bathrobe in the middle of the night when there's no one else in the store? Why? Why would you do that? That could get you killed. And Alan, the dancing man in the bathrobe in the store in the middle of the night, is a black man. And if you've been following the news, well, it's possible Dylan worried that calling the police could get Alan killed. It would certainly cross my mind. Anyway, according to the testimony taken at the hearing where the license committee voted to strip Dylan of his business license, effectively shutting him down, Dylan has run 35th Hometown for 20 years without incident and has a 40-year, quote, positive track record as a small business owner in Milwaukee. And he's cooperated with the police in the past. And on this case, too, prosecutors credit him for the successful prosecution of Frederick Allen. And they voted to close the business anyway after Alderman Rainey said the two magic words, sex trafficking. No one knows that the woman in the video was trafficked, but she might have been, for all anyone knows, according to Rainey. So they voted to shut 35th Hometown down. There's a lawsuit, and 35th Hometown remains open while the decision is under appeal. But there is one detail from the testimony that leapt out at me, testimony taken before the Licenses Committee, that seems to have been overlooked by the Licenses Committee, by the Milwaukee Common Council. Quote, the man involved in the sex act, Frederick Allen, amateur porn star, has a history of doing this All over the city. So, looks like we're going to have to shut all of Milwaukee down, folks. It's the only way to keep Milwaukee safe for chips and sunflower seeds. Okay, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast. Tons of listener cues. Tons of my And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. Twice as much show. No ads. More guests. You can subscribe to the Magnum at SavageLovecast.com. Dr. Wednesday Martin, author of Untrue, is back to talk with us about how women's libidos really work. Spoiler, it's not the way we're told they work. All that coming up on today's show.
3: Hey, Dan. 32-year-old living in Europe. Just recently, I got divorced. My now ex-wife and I were together for seven years and married for three. The relationship was really good and happy for most of the time. We lived in four different countries. We traveled a lot. But it unraveled in the last year, and I don't think either of us really understand why. We parted on good terms, and she moved out of the apartment we were living in. We didn't see each other again for a year until our court date, and during that time, we often had to email about mundane things like taxes and whatnot. Her emails were always very formal, usually without a hi or a bye. And whenever I wrote something more personal, like how I missed her or how I felt her emails were unnecessarily cold, I never got any reply. Once I saw her walking, holding hands with another guy not far from where I lived, and when I texted her asking her was that her i saw, all she wrote back was yes. Later I learned she had moved across the road from me, and when I asked her why, she never replied. Everything was blanked, no message on my birthday, no talking to me when we saw each other in court. The pain of breaking up was enough already, I thought. I suppose what I'm asking is, am I entitled to feel angry about this, or is this normal? I keep swinging between feeling totally betrayed by her silence when it wouldn't have taken much, in my opinion, to be distant but respectful. I accepted the relationship was over, but I wasn't expecting her to cut herself so bluntly from my life. On the other hand, I feel perhaps I'm being unfair and that I should learn to understand as it must have been incredibly hard on her, even if it was her decision, and she's just trying to protect her own heart. But was I entitled to feel more after seven years? Um, being married or once a relationship is over, is it okay to act like there was never one in the first place?
2: Fairness really has nothing to do with it. You ask if once a relationship is over, if it's unfair to pretend there never was a relationship in the first place. That's just sometimes something someone needs to do to move past, to get through it, to heal. We talk a lot about how, you know, after a breakup, people often take a long time away from each other. There's a long period of little or no contact. And then maybe if a friendship is going to emerge out of the ruins of this relationship, they'll circle back. At some point, the universe or fate or even intentional choice will throw them back together and they will reconnect and they will tap into what they enjoyed about each other. Not the romance Not the sexual attraction, but just the ability to be comfortable with each other and intimate. And there's that shared history there. Once the anger and pain of the breakup itself and everything that was lost in the breakup has time to dissipate. But some people need to burn that off. Some people need to kind of set fire to it so they can get through it, so they can work through it. If indeed they're ever going to reconnect. It seems to me that this marriage ended... In a confusing and painful way, a year ago, you would like, you would have preferred to maintain some degree of contact, to send each other messages on your birthday, to be able to exchange emails with some cordial remarks in them. And that obviously isn't what she needs or she wants. And as painful as it may be for you to acknowledge that and accept that, you have no other choice. You can't require her to send you messages on your birthday. You're entitled to your. I wouldn't say anger in a situation like this, but your disappointment, maybe you're entitled to that. There's a way you wish the breakup had unfolded or the last year had went or a way you wish that you could interact with your wife or your now ex-wife as of very recently. And you didn't get that. Well, you don't get everything you want. You're not entitled to that. You can be sad about what you didn't get, what you hoped for, the kind of divorce you wish you had. You can be sad that you didn't get that. But I don't think you have a right to be angry. I think that better angel of your nature that's whispering in your ear that this is just where she is and what she needs now to work through this. You need to listen to that angel, not the devil on your other shoulder telling you to be angry, but the angel telling you to chill the fuck out. Maybe one day you will be in a place where you can reconnect, where you can remember the good times, where you can be civil and cordial, even friendly and mutually supportive until that day comes. And I don't think you should attempt to engineer that day's arrival, but until that day comes, let it go. When you see her out with someone else, don't send her an email asking if that was her that you saw out with someone else. Don't track her movements. Don't concern yourself with where she lives and how close it might be to your apartment. Just chill the fuck out. Move the fuck on. Let go of your anger. Own your disappointment. You're allowed to be disappointed. And focus on the future. A future that may or may not one day include a friendship with your ex-wife. But at the moment, in your current reality, that's not on the table and your anger can't force it onto the table.
4: Hey Dan, I'm a 30-year-old straight cisgendered female living in Texas. So I really like this guy, but the first time we tried to have sex, he couldn't really get it up. I assumed it was whiskey dick because we had been drinking for a really long time. But as the weeks went on, we tried a few more times, all with the same result. He's a bit young for ED, about a year younger than I am. So I thought maybe it was just general anxiety because he's kind of socially awkward and idiosyncratic, but I was willing to be patient until he got more comfortable. But here's the twist. As soon as a conversation came up about actually dating, he said something along the lines of "I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but I'm kind of self-conscious about the way my body works. Um, I could probably be considered asexual. He talked about all the sex he had in his early 20s, which was mostly sex he paid for, and the occasional casual hookup, and how one day he just got bored and his libido died. He said that he hoped that being with somebody like me, hypersexual, would bring it back, but he wasn't holding his breath. I asked if he was open to open relationships, and he said yes, so now we're dating. The relationship itself has been going really well, aside from the sex, It's been about three months, and I've made him come once. He's made me come a lot more than that. (laughs) Anyways, nothing seems to kill his boner faster than attempting to have vaginal sex with me. And before you say anything, I don't think he's gay. He has no issue eating me out, and he sustains an erection for it. But despite what he says, he does seem to have a libido. He's usually the one that initiates. He masturbates. I've taken sex off the table since that's usually when things kind of die for us, but I'm starting to get concerned that he won't be satisfied. Uh, Coming with a partner once every three months is more than his usual. He's an attractive guy, but he's really intelligent, hates small talk, and we're both kind of loners. I don't think he dates much, or ever, but I guess I was kind of just wondering what your take on all this was and why he has so much trouble... And if it would get better over time, do you think there's anything I can do to help him and his sexual satisfaction? Or does this just seem normal for what he's saying and the kind of person he is?
2: You you say you're starting to worry uh, whether he's satisfied or could be satisfied uh, in this relationship. And my question for you is, are you satisfied?
5: Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Uh, It is open. So I have the other sources and everything. And like I said, he's, Made me come plenty. Uh By his own account, he is more of a pleaser mm-hmm. and like a giver.
2: Mm-hmm. So. And do you like being pleased? Do you like taking, accepting? Sure. And you can get PIV outside the relationship when you'd like yes. a deep dicking. Yeah. I assume that's what you like?
6: Yes. I feel like it's
5: off balance, you know? <laughs> I feel a little weird about it.
2: Yeah, it could just be you know there are some guys out there that piv for maybe physical reasons or maybe psychological reasons they haven't fully confronted or unpacked yet just isn't what they want they want to eat pussy they want to you know manual stimulation it's if he is hard during cunnilingus when he's eating you out uh, I would encourage you maybe to encourage him to masturbate while he eats you out so that he can come too, so he doesn't just come with you once every three months, but that you incorporate mutual masturbation or, or him stimulating himself into the sex that you both enjoy and the sex that works for both of you in the context of your relationship. That makes sense. While keeping PIV on the table. Like you want it to be pleasurable for him too. And it's a fine thing for you to be invested in in, in his orgasms. You know, we tell straight men, we want them to be more invested in their female partner's orgasms. We usually don't have to tell straight women to be invested in their male partner's orgasms because the whole fucking culture is so invested in men's orgasms that they're constantly – and sort of default prioritized in all sexual encounters right but this may be a case you know an outlier case where you the, the the woman in this relationship needs to say to him like i want you to get off too i want your pleasure is important to me i want to see you come whether it's coming in my pussy which you don't seem to be particularly interested in and it's not your favorite thing but like come on my tits come while you're eating me out uh let's try other forms of outer course or toys like i want it's important to me for you to get off too. And it gives me pleasure to see you get off. Have you said that sort of thing to him? No, but I really should. <laughs> You should, and then listen to what he says. You know, he may have a, a low libido. He may only want to come every once in a great while. He may prefer to to service you, and then perhaps later, when he's alone, masturbate to the memories. But he should be able to open up with you and share those things with you, if if that's the case. So you're more comfortable that the sex that you have for him works for him, even if it means like he's going to jack off about it later uh it's still pleasure that you're giving him even if he's alone when he has his thundering orgasm and continue to draw him out about it you know keep the conversation open if you guys early in a relationship could have a conversation that for most couples is really difficult and challenging about opening the relationship you should be able you should have the skills i think you or you already have the skills to have a conversation about what he enjoys when he enjoys it his orgasms um, you know, decentering PIV, so he feels entitled to his orgasms, perhaps even if he isn't going to engage in penis and vagina intercourse with you uh, often or at all, if that's not something that he enjoys. Uh, But you should be able to have that conversation. I'm confident you can. If you had a conversation about opening the relationship, about crafting an accommodation that made you two work for each other so that you weren't deprived of PIV and you were able to explore the things that he wasn't into with others, if you could have that conversation in the first week, you can have this conversation now.
4: Yeah, he, he is pretty relaxed about that kind of stuff. That was a surprisingly easy conversation. I don't know that he's as much into talking about feelings and stuff. But yeah, I can try to work it out. I don't know if the, the,
2: the conversation, don't open with feelings, open with orgasms, open with pleasure. And if he doesn't have to be comfortable to t- talking about his feelings for you to talk about yours and just to emphasize that you're invested in his pleasure and whatever that, whatever form that takes, doesn't mean he has to come for you on command. If his pleasure is eating you out and coming you know, every couple of months and getting you off all the time and masturbating himself uh you know around the edges um that that can work for you too but you need but he does owe you some explanation so that you're comfortable with your sex life with him as it exists so that you have an understanding of it so you don't feel like you're taking advantage of him or wronging him or he's deprived or that there may be resentment growing like a mold in the corner like you want some reassurance it doesn't mean he has to open up to you like you're a his therapist or he's rolling on E or anything. Okay. Make it about you. Just like when I called and I said, like you ask, you worry whether he's satisfied. And I was, my first concern is, are you like open with you? You can have a conversation with him that centers how you feel about your sex life with him. That involves his pleasure and his orgasms too. that conversation, but lead with your feelings.
0: Okay. That is a good idea. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. Good luck.
0: Hi, Dan. I'm a queer woman around 30 years old living in the Pacific Northwest. A few years ago, my best friend, let's call him Kyle, was in a three-year relationship with this person. Let's call them Jordan. Kyle is a cisgendered man, but this story is really about Jordan, who now identifies as non-binary, so I'll be using they-them pronouns. But it's relevant to know that they were assigned female at birth and identified as female at the time of this story. "'Kyle, Jordan, and I quickly became best friends after meeting. "'I watched their relationship disintegrate "'and both confided in me regularly. "'It became clear that Jordan probably had borderline personality disorder, "'and this was the root of many of their problems. "'I've caught Jordan lying many times. "'Jordan would often fly off the handle over a small issue "'and would become violent toward Kyle.' Kyle was also sexually frustrated because he was constantly being rejected and going three months at a time without sex, and Jordan would accuse him of trying to coerce them into sex if he even mentioned the subject. During the rare moments when Jordan wanted sex, Kyle was not allowed to say no. Jordan would hit him and scream at him for daring to turn them down when they were finally in the mood. Jordan told me they were raped as a young teenager, and I think this colored all their sexual experiences. Jordan and Kyle's relationship finally disintegrated because Jordan was, was pushing to be poly and was constantly trying to get with other people, but they would flip the fuck out when Kyle met someone else he wanted to date. Meanwhile, Jordan was dating a bunch of dudes, including two friends of mine. Jordan eventually accused both men of having been sexually aggressive toward them. There's not enough time to explain, so you'll have to trust me, but I know those guys well, and I'm sure that never happened. Jordan and Kyle finally broke up. Jordan starts telling their friends that Kyle sexually assaulted them throughout the relationship. They were intentionally vague and never corrected the people who assumed he raped them. Jordan would go to open-mic poetry slams and share angry rants about their so-called sexually abusive ex and the violation of women's bodies. And because they're such an interesting person and skilled at writing poetry, Jordan formed a sympathetic community around themselves. Soon the hearsay had spread around town that Kyle was a rapist. Have his friends abandon him without asking for his side. Kyle and I have since been roommates, we've continued to be best friends, and he's the most gentle, considerate person. No one else has accused him of being sexually aggressive, but this drama is still affecting him four years later. This brings me to my question. I've also been sexually assaulted multiple times, but I still hate it when I hear my fellow feminist friends say believe women. I think this is why everyone believed Jordan without even asking Kyle for his side. If my friend opens up to me, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, but I think that blindly believing women can be really dangerous and counterproductive since Jordan was really the abuser. I feel a strong need to push back when I hear people say, believe women. How would you approach that conversation?
2: We do need to believe women. We need to believe women when they say that for too long, men have been able to sexually harass or assault them and get away with it and do so with absolute impunity and that we need to believe women when they say that for millennia, any woman who came forward with allegations of sexual assault or harassment was instantly disbelieved. That was the default setting. Not to take that seriously. Not only not to take it seriously, but to attack the woman who brought forward the charges. And it was a way of sending a signal to all other women out there who had been sexually assaulted or raped themselves that the cost of coming forward and reporting that was going to be so great that it wasn't worth it. And it was how the culture really moved to protect rapists and empower rapists. So we need to believe women when they collectively say that and believe men who say that too believe women doesn't mean that women who are people and people can be shitty and shitty people are capable of lying. It doesn't mean that no woman could ever make a false allegation of sexual assault or sexual harassment or write a poem about it and make shit up or lie or mischaracterize at a slam. That's not what believe women means. If that's what believe women means, that's handing a lot of power to people, to individuals. And power can be abused. So when it comes to the collective believe women, believe women when they talk about their reality, their shared experience, their collective experience, about the history of sexual assault and rape, yes, absolutely. When it comes to the individual, I believe myself that believe women should shift a bit and really mean take women seriously. Take these allegations seriously. Don't assume the default posture of not believing, of dismissing. Take it seriously. You can take seriously what this person, this non-binary person had to say about their relationship with your friend, and you can make a critical judgment about the veracity of those allegations you should scrutinize your own motives sometimes we don't want to think the worst about people that we like because not not just because we like them and we're invested in them but because it makes us doubt our own judgment it it implicates us as well not just the person that this charge has been made against that we're You know, attempting to weigh what we know of them versus what we know of these charges. And it's not enough to say, you know, this person is so kind and gentle. I don't think they'd ever be capable of doing that. People have said that about Donald fucking Trump. People have gone on television and said he's always been – men have gone on television and said he's always been a perfect gentleman to me. Men have gone on television to say effectively, he never grabbed my pussy to get him off the hook. So you have to be a little self-critical. You have to interrogate your own motives, your own assumptions, your own biases. But if in the end you conclude that this isn't true, that is a conclusion that you can reasonably come to. If in every case of sexual assault you conclude that it is baseless, well, then you're a problem. You're part of the problem. So what do you do in this instance? Well, you continue to offer your friend who you believe has been falsely maligned your love and support and friendship and he continues to move on from this Mm -hmm. and attempt to make new friends. And other than that, I don't know what can possibly be done because this person made these allegations that you believe to be untrue and it's going to spread like wildfire through your progressive community. That is something that – Barring moving away, and even if he were to move away, it's going to follow him because of social media, he's never going to quite get past. He's just going to have to, unfortunately, sadly, live with and hopefully in time live down.
7: Hi, Dan. I'm a trans, queer male. I'm calling about my brother who is in the relationship with a woman who is a severe alcoholic who's had multiple instances where she's – lashed out at him physically she's been sober for about a month but they're planning to get married in five months and i don't know what to do i've been trying to convince him to postpone the wedding obviously i don't think he should be with her but that never works Uh, and it's just destroying our family my parents are absolutely distraught I'm still gonna to go to the wedding, I think they are too, if it's happening, but I'm really trying to convince him to just postpone the wedding at the very least, but I was looking for some advice as to what to do with someone that you care about who's in a really toxic abusive relationship i nothing I say seems to convince him to to leave her, and I don't want to lose him or lose you know his connection with me. Was yours already cut out a lot of the family and a lot of friends over this, and you know I feel like if I push him too hard that he'll pull away from me too.
2: For some reason, as I listen to your call and I've gotten a lot of questions like yours over the years, the Serenity Prayer of all things popped to mind. So I'm going to paraphrase the Serenity Prayer here: God grant me the serenity to prevent the marriages I can prevent, the courage to attend the weddings I can't stop, and the wisdom to know the difference. Speak your peace to your brother. It sounds like you've already spoken your peace to your brother. You advised him not to marry this woman at all or, at the very least, to delay the wedding, to push back the actual marriage, which is five months out. She's only a month sober. A lot can go south in five months. It may be that he's going to call the marriage off himself. But the appeal you can make to him is if you're going to be together forever, if her sobriety is – permanent and if this is a healthy relationship, there's nothing about being together forever that waiting an extra year for her to prove to you that she's no longer going to be violent, no longer going to be a violent drunk. There's nothing about waiting that extra year that prevented you from being together forever. There is something ill-advised about rushing into a premature commitment and marrying someone who's four weeks sober, who has a history of Drunken violence is almost a textbook definition of a premature commitment. All that said, though, this is where the Serenity Prayer kicks in. Your brother's an adult, and there's nothing you can do in the end to stop him from setting his life on fire if that's what you think he's doing. And he can't require you to sit there and toast marshmallows in the flames. You can attend the wedding because you support your brother, even if you don't support this marriage but he doesn't have a right to demand that you change your mind about her or about this plan. You can object and love and support. And of course, as I always say, remind that person whose relationship or wedding plans you're objecting to that if they ever come around and they need out and they need help, you will not, I told you so them when they reach out to you or if they ever have to reach out to you. So you don't want someone to hesitate to reach out to you for help getting out of a relationship you wanted to see them get out of because they fear being judged. And there are a lot of examples out there of people who stayed in abusive relationships or just shitty relationships they needed to get out of for an extra year or two, sometimes enough time to get pregnant and have a child because they feared the shaming. They feared the, I told you so's that they worried would come with perhaps the help. So let him know in advance. Always let somebody know in advance that when they ask for your help, they will get it. No, I told you so.
5: Hi, Dan. I just got in a new relationship. Uh, I have limited ex- sexual experience, and I hope you could guide me a little. I only had three partners, uh, the first being an ex that I had a similar problem with. So uh, the new guy, he's great, GGG. We have awesome chemistry, and I'm really excited to be in a relationship with him. The, problem is we've only been dating for three months and even though I'm on hormonal birth control it feels too soon to be fluid bonded and he's not really pressuring me. Um, The problem is we use Magnum condoms and they cut circulation off because he's pretty thick. So I'm wondering if this is like normal because my experience with condoms is really limited because uh, it's just not an equipment I have and it is they're like a larger size or because we've both been STI tested we're exclusive relationship maybe I'm just overthinking this and fluid bonded isn't a big deal because I trust the birth control that I'm using my first partner that I ever had also had a similar problem but I was young and done and threw away the condom concept soon before researching so you have any ideas or brands suggested or if I'm just being paranoid because of my limited experience, I, I just really appreciate your advice because we've only been dating for three months and I don't really want to get ahead of myself.
2: That expression, fluid bonded or fluid bonding rose up out of HIV prevention education in the 80s. People talked about being fluid bonded, meant having an exclusive partner and you could forego condoms and it was usually gay relationships that this term got thrown around in. And the stakes were unbelievably high because if you were fluid bonded with somebody in 1990 or 1988 or 1995 – and that person was HIV positive and didn't know it since their last test or that person cheated on you and became infected and then came home and infected their fluid bonded partner, which happened. Well, that meant you were HIV positive and in 1988, 1992, 1995, 1996, that was incredibly consequential. And the term that got thrown around a lot was it was a death sentence. Not always a death sentence, but for many, in the end, it was so in a way hearing those those three little syllables fluid bonded for me kind of throws me back to HIV prevention education in the 80s and 90s and when this was a much more consequential step perhaps than it is for you three months into a relationship you know back when I was having fluid bonded discussions with partners of my own with my husband 25 years ago we talked about it for years not 3 months for years before we stopped using condoms. I had been in a relationship with someone else before Terry for five years, and we never stopped using condoms. We never took that step because we were watching people drop dead all around us. If your concern is only pregnancy, well, it's not as consequential, perhaps, a step for you. You've only known the guy for three months, and you have options beyond magnum condoms if he's got a super thick dick and condoms cut off his circulation. There are femidoms or female condoms, sometimes called internal condoms because not just women use them. They're basically a trash can liner for your ass or your pussy. You put the condom in the orifice you're going to fuck, and then you fuck that giant condom and there's nothing on his deck. The condom is in you, not on him. And femidoms or internal condoms are much larger than magnum condoms. And I'm sure that so long as you guys want to continue to use some sort of barrier or protection, so long as you're not ready to fluid bond, a femidom, a female condom would be very effective. They are more expensive, however. So that's your option. The other option, since you're using other forms of birth control, is to fluid bond. And I think that you could put that on the table. You could have that conversation. Part of that conversation needs to be, are we exclusive? Do you have other partners? Are you fluid bonded with other partners? And what does that mean? And if he does have other partners, well, there are other sexually transmitted infections beyond pregnancy that you're going to need to worry about. Gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, Um, Condoms provide a little bit of protection uh, against HPV. I hope you're vaccinated Uh, and some protection against herpes. But of course, the skin-to-skin sexually transmitted infections, condoms uh, only provide a small degree or a a large degree, but not as much protection as they provide against gonorrhea or syphilis or All that said, I think three months may be too soon to go fluid bonded. I think you have to get a better sense of who he is. And at the very least, you need to have your first fight. At the very least, you need to see how he processes conflict, how he tells you, difficult truths you know one of the convos we had to have about fluid bonding if you wanted to become fluid bonded with a gay male partner in the 80s or 90s safely was that if you cheated on me or I cheated on you rather than just hope for the best and keep not using condoms with you know me that you would tell me the truth that you had you know cheated on me and been unsafe with someone else so that we could start using condoms again until we tested and then got the all clear again. But for that person to not be disincentivized from telling you the truth, you had to promise not to break up with them if they cheated on you so that they would be honest with you. If somebody cheated on you and they knew you were going to break up with them, they were less likely to tell you, to warn you, to prioritize your health in that moment. So I think three months is too soon you need to see him be honest with you at a difficult moment where it's not necessarily in his best interest to be honest with you and how he handles that and how you process that and then you'll be in a better place to make a decision about whether you can trust him to blow those hot sticky loads in your twat
8: hi and happy new year to dan nancy and the at-risk youth this is a uh, 35 year old straight cisgender male in an east coast city calling about a financial relationship question so uh, I have a friend, who's maybe a decade younger than me, lives somewhere out in the Midwest. And over the summer, I uh, I lent her and her boyfriend some money because they were waiting for a settlement to come through. They just needed twenty bucks to grab food stamps for the weekend. So I sent them two hundred and said, "Go to town, have a have a good weekend. If you're if you're okay, let me know later." Ever since then, pretty much toward the end of the month. Every month, it has been frequent social media postings, oh, we need 50 bucks for this, we need 20 bucks for this, the the settlement for my injury never came through, I'll never get the job, etc., etc., and it comes into private messages over my social media asking if there's any way I can help, and it just feels like the mounting drama is always a part of being friends with this person, and it feels like the financial need is always going to be a part of. Knowing this person, I reached out to my mother uh, who was in a very similar situation. She's down a couple grand from a big brother, big sister program that she had to cut that family off after three years when it proved that they're never going to be able to save a dime of whatever she lent them. And I feel the same way. If Every part of me wants to help this person out however I can because I, I know personally how hard and expensive in America. It is to be broke and how hopeless it can be with a mental disorder and having landlords come at you for money. But it breaks my heart when I have to tell this person no. And I kind of just want validation of, am I right to cut the person off after a certain time or a certain dollar amount of, you can't keep coming to me every week because every month your landlord is threatening to kick you out or every month you got disapproved for food stamps or every month. I I know that I'm not being played. I heavily suspect I'm not being played, but it also breaks my heart to not be able to help this person out as frequently as I want to. What do you think I should do? Is it time to cut this person off or should I just set up a weekly twenty dollar donation, like a personal Patreon, just to give them a hand.
2: Usually, when I get a financial relationship question these days, it's FinDom. This isn't FinDom. This is just opportunism. Some people think FinDom is a kind of opportunism, but I think this is opportunism on your friend's part. You asked, or they asked, if you could spare twenty bucks to help them out with a little bit of food, and you sent two hundred and told them to go to town, and they have gone to town on asks, on hitting you up for more and more money. When you sent the 200, in addition to the money, you sent a message that you were very generous and that you had money to spare and that you could make it rain, as they say. And so they've continued to hit you up for money. I think you need to reassess this friendship because they live in a different city. You only hear from them when they want money. How much of a friendship is this? right now? And is it worth it to you to, to keep them in your life? If having them in your life just means these asks, these requests, and the, the guilt and anxiety that these requests and these asks at the rate they come in and how predictable they are at this point causes you. And it sounds to me like the answer is no. It sounds to me like you're calling, seeking permission to end this relationship, to cut these folks off. You have my permission. You have been more than generous for a long time. And in that time, they should have done whatever it is they needed to do to get themselves into a position where they wouldn't have to be hitting up a generous friend in the way that they've been hitting you up. So tell them you have no more money to spare. Tell them you wish them well. Tell them you hope that they can get it together, but you are tapped out.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-30s just straight woman from the Pacific Northwest and a Magnum subscriber and absolutely love your show. I recently got out of a relationship with a man. We were together for about a year, pretty on and off towards the end. He is lovely and I respect him, but it was clear that we aren't the right emotional matches for each other in a committed partnership and maybe should have just kept it casual from the beginning. The sex has always been great. And while I ultimately want to find a long-term emotionally connected partner, I'm also interested in having some great, safe, unattached sex in the meantime. Is it possible to have a purely sexual relationship with an ex if you truly have no desire or expectations for it to become anything more? If so, what advice do you have to do this in the most clear, fun, physically and emotionally safe and honest way?
2: You want to find a potential long-term emotionally compatible partner, but you also want to find a long-term emotionally compatible partner that you have great sex with. And the risk here is that if you're getting your sexual needs met by this person, you're going to feel a little bit less urgency on your hunt for the person who is both emotionally a match for you and also sexually a match for you. It is possible for people to have friends with benefits relationships with exes. It's not always easy because relationships often don't end cleanly on both sides. You say that you guys weren't a match emotionally And it ended. Did you end it? Did he end it? Where are the hurt feelings? It's really rare for a relationship to end by absolutely equally balanced mutual agreement. There's usually someone who's got some residual, sometimes hard feelings, sometimes just feeling feelings. And if it's him, well, he may go into a friends with benefits arrangement in the hopes that the relationship will revive. And so you need to game that out. For something like this to work, it really needs to be one of those rare instances where the relationship ended by absolutely balanced mutual agreement, where no one is going into the friends with benefits, sexual relationship with ulterior motives or false hopes about a potential future where the relationship, again, revives itself or or comes back online or you get back together. And so if that's absolutely not something that could ever happen, you need to, Be able to say that, and they need to not be hurt by hearing that, or they need to be able to say it, and you need to look inside and make sure that you're not hurt by hearing that. And I think that's pretty rare in my experience. And of course, my sample is always skewed because I hear from people when it's going wrong, not when it's going right. Friends with benefits relationships, particularly right away in the immediate aftermath of the end of a relationship. Someone is getting hurt by that. Someone is getting the sex that they loved. Someone is getting great sex. Maybe the other person is also getting great sex, but they're also getting their heart kicked around because they have hopes that are false, that are being encouraged by the sex that they're having, by that connection. So that's my concern. And you're really going to have to do a deep dive with him about your feelings, about his feelings, to determine whether it was an equally balanced mutual agreement sort of end, or whether there are hurt feelings and hopes on one side that the sexual relationship could, you know, pour salt into that wound. And again, also circling back to my original comment, I have seen cases where people got out of a relationship, but the sex was awesome. They kept having sex. And so they didn't really get out there and find somebody else that they could have a sexual and emotionally compatible relationship with because they were getting all of their sexual needs met by this person, by the ex. And so there wasn't that sense of urgency. Maybe, you know, a sense of urgency isn't always a great thing. Sometimes a sense of urgency prompts us to jump into bed with people we don't want to be in bed with, we shouldn't be in bed with, or take risks we shouldn't have taken or wouldn't have taken if we weren't so. Sense of urgency can also mean desperate, but it can be the case. Or if you're getting all the sex you need from the ex, you're not going to find the next.
9: Hi, Dan. um, A gay 30-year-old guy from Chicago calling. We are at a party tonight, and there's a group of us, um, mixed gender, mixed sexualities, and the topic of Audi vaginas came up. And um, one girl got really uncomfortable with the conversation, and then the rest of us started to feel really bad. And so now we're wondering... If this is the equivalent to talking about a small penis, because we know that that's um, not something that's really nice to talk about. And we have learned as a group that there's a lot of different types of vaginas and maybe calling out one type of vagina is rude and not nice. Um, We're just wondering your opinion on this because we kind of feel bad about it. And yeah, we are all apologizing one by one to the girl who got offended by the Audi vagina comment
2: call-out culture has gone too far if we are calling out Audi vagina. I'm not sure what you mean by you were calling out one type of vagina, in this case, an Audi vagina. I assume what you mean by Audi vagina, like some people refer to Audi belly buttons, is large labia. Large labia majora or labia minora. Some women have large labia in the same way that some men have large scrotums, the same chunk of Fetal flesh that becomes the scrotum in the dude becomes the labia in the the woman. And they come in all different shapes and sizes and they're all awesome. And if you guys were sitting around, a bunch of gay men sitting around talking about outie vaginas, calling them out, by which I think you mean to say, suggesting that they were less desirable or gross. Yeah, that was a terrible, shitty thing for you to do and for you to say. There are a lot of women out there. Who feel really conflicted about their bodies because they have perfectly normal larger labia, just like some men have perfectly normal larger penises, as large as and larger foreskins. So yeah, I'm glad you're apologizing to this person. I hope it's not awkward for her putting her on the spot because your apologies would seem, if all she did was get quiet and upset, would seem to assume that she does have an Audi vagina and you guys are now entitled to talk about her vagina in a personal way. So hopefully these apologies are general about making her uncomfortable with the jokes that you were telling. Maybe she was annoyed and upset on behalf of women broadly and generally not annoyed and upset because she herself has exactly the kind of vagina that you were talking about. And yeah, don't do it. I'm uncomfortable with small penis jokes and I just watched A stand-up comedy special on Netflix where there was a long string of small penis jokes, comedian I really like and admire. And it's a problem. Like they cut to the audience laughing and I scanned the audience thinking, you know, some guys have small penises. Their penises still work and a small penis can be an awesome penis and – Those of us who've had sex with a lot of guys can tell you that there are guys out there with big penises who don't know what they're doing with them or the dude attached to the large penis is such a fucking asshole that the large penis is no compensation. I get letters. I have gotten letters from young guys, from guys in their teens who were suicidal because they thought their penises were too small for anyone to ever – Love them So I would like to see those small penis jokes stop. I would like to see people stop suggesting that anyone who owns a gun is overcompensating for having a tiny penis. I don't think it's helpful. It is a kind of body shaming that can be very destructive in the same way that the kind of body shaming that you and your friends were engaged in at this party about vaginas is very destructive and it should stop on both sides.
10: Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at risk youth. I was calling in regard to women's libidos in a long term relationship versus men. And I know at one point in time I heard you say something, heard Dan say something on the uh, podcast about how women tend to lose interest earlier in a relationship than men do. Uh, so I'm in a it's getting to be a long-term relationship we've been together for 4 years and i'm at a point where i have to really work to get myself in the mood to want to be with my partner and you know we used to have sex like most people in the beginning of a relationship like almost every time we saw each other and so you know multiple times a week like probably five times a week at least, and I'm just wondering, it seems like, you know, he's always in the mood, and he's always wanting to be with me, and we've just, so we're kind of in this different point, and I'm wondering uh, what the science is behind physiology, and um, if there is any research as to um, long-term relationships with a heterosexual couple, and if there's a difference in libido.
2: Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Wednesday Martin, number one New York Times bestselling author and social researcher. Her most recent book, Untrue, went into the science behind this, dispelling myths about women and monogamy and desire and infidelity, uh, and making the recent science on this topic accessible and relevant and hilarious and delicious. Hey, Wednesday Martin, Dr. Martin, how are you?
6: Hi, Dan Savage, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh my gosh, this woman is living in the sweet spot of the female sexual conundrum. She's so typical.
2: Or the unsweet spot, because it doesn't sound like she's or very happy. Or the
6: yeah. Let's call it the unsweet spot, and let's get her back in the zone. The first thing I notice, I always pay attention to people's language. She says she has to work to get herself in the mood, right? Mm-hmm. And I just want to say that's sort of the root of the conundrum, and what I love about her is she's not pathologizing herself for it or her partner or her relationship. A lot of women go to this place of it's work to want to have sex with my male partner. Something must be wrong with him or something must be wrong with me or there must be something wrong with our relationship. That's where a lot of women go. I love that she's not doing that to herself. And she is one hundred percent right because in fact she's completely normal.
2: Right, right. But the but the the culture tells people and you know in every dumb magazine and you know every previously, you know, uh, in the past, every Oprah guest, what we're told that if you love someone and you're really connected, you're going to want to fuck that person all the time, forever for 60 years without any drop off in libido. And the reality is very different than that. And then people, the
6: reality is very different for that, especially for women.
2: And and, and people encounter that, the difference in that reality. And of course they pathologize their relationships because everything they've been told about how relationships work is a lie.
6: That's right. So the whole mythology that if you love your partner, uh, you're going to want to have sex with them forever, that is just one of the biggest lies of Western culture. And you and I know that. And she is starting to see that if she doesn't know it already. But she is framing it as, is this a difference in libido? And this is how most people approach this. When women start getting bored in a relationship, most people say, sure, what do you expect? Men have stronger libidos than women. And this is how she's framing it, right? Mm -hmm. And I love that she's asking it as a question. And the the short answer to her question is no, there is not a difference in libido. And there's a lot of scientific kerfuffle around this that doesn't matter to her. Here's what really does matter to her. When we measure female desire correctly, uh, male and female desire are not that discrepant from one another. Here's the real discrepancy. Women get bored in long-term, monogamous, cohabiting relationships sooner than men do. Boom. I said it. <laughs> that like goes, that goes against the script that we have been spoon-fed since we were children. Mm-hmm. We're always taught that men, whether they're gay or straight, are total sex bunnies, they're energizer bunnies, take them down off the shelf, they want to fuck all the time. And women are retiring and coy and reticent and choosy. There has been a revolution in the science about female sexuality and nobody's been listening. And what that revolution taught us was women get bored sooner. We have longitudinal study after longitudinal study. Dietrich Klussmann's two German studies and Kagan's study in Finland's. Cynthia Graham's study in the U.K. of over 11,000 adults, Kristen Mark's study in the U.S. of over 3,000 adults that all found the same thing. Women, on average, get bored between years one and four, and they are much more likely to report that it impacts their desire to have sex. And their likelihood of stepping out and finding a new partner. So,
2: so what does this mean then? Does this mean we should all just be serial monogamous and we should, you know, end it after two years, whatever it is, and move on? And also, like what you said about men are the sex energizer bunnies on the shelf and just take them down and they want to fucking, fucking, fuck. And and, and women, you know, are more reserved or, or less horny. That's kind of true, but it's not that women are less horny, it's just that they're going to get less horny in a long-term relationship sooner than men it's, get less horny yeah, in that long-term relationship. It,
6: it, here's what happens, and Dietrich Klesman said this years ago, but all these other researchers that I mentioned have said it as well, and it's all in my book on true, and my article in The Atlantic called Women the Board Sex. If we were to look at what happens to male desire over time in a long-term cohabiting relationship, we would see it ebbing really slowly over the course of nine or 10 years. Slowly, 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 the guy wants to have sex with his female partner less. But but it's a slow, slow, long process. If we were looking at what happens to female desire over nine or ten years in a long term cohabiting monogamous relationship, between years one and four, Dan, we would see her desire dropping like a steel ball out of the sky <laughs> and tumbling down to the inner depths of hell. Okay, this right? is so That's
2: depressing. De- this is like so no, depressing for not. opposite sex couples. Like I wish everybody could be gay so that you know the two people in the relationship were always on the same page about desire Wouldn't that be good? how is this not just an engine for endless conflict and those opposite sex relationships that never work out
6: this is the this is the good news here there is something called psychoeducation which is what you and i are doing right now which we are giving people the facts when we tell heterosexual men and women yeah your girlfriend or your wife or your partner turns off between years one and four and it's not your fault and it's not her fault and it's not about the relationship. It's that contrary to everything you've been taught, women need variety and novelty and adventure in the aggregate more than men do. Think about the way that's going to set people free. Mm-hmm. Think about all the men, the heterosexual men, who are going to stop thinking, this is about my dick, this is about my wallet, this is about something I'm doing wrong. Think about all the heterosexual women who are going to be able to stop saying, Oh no, I turned into my mother. I don't like sex. I'm a typical woman with a low libido. No, you're a typical woman who you haven't gone off sex. You've gone off sex with the same person over and over and over and over and over again within one to four years because you were a normal human woman being a normal human woman. There's science to prove it. Now, what can you do? You want to know?
2: Serial monogamy, relationship to relationship, fuck other people.
6: <laughs> some people are, are going to think that you and I are crazy uh, to promote or support people who decide not to be monogamous. And for those people, the answer might be, "Hey, have your boyfriend act like a total stranger that yes. you've never met before. Yes. Go to a sex party and just watch. You don't have to do anything. Get into the porn that you like. Take or risks. if you."
2: Yeah, I'm risk. always saying that to people. like You were the adventure that they were on at the beginning of the relationship, and they were the adventure you were on a year or more into the relationship. You're not the adventure each other is on anymore. You have to go on adventures together as a pair. You have to create.
6: And listen, heterosexual men, this is on you. Your wife or female partner has a thirst for the new that you cannot even understand until you're at your ten or 11, and she's starting to feel it at year one or four. What can you do to make yourself new and interesting and exciting to your female partner? And I would say just ask over and over and don't expect her to tell you the first time. And eventually, she's going to cop that variety and novelty and adventure would get her going again.
2: Although some women don't, although some women don't cop to that because they don't realize it. Because they just are, they you know they struggle with this false consciousness. They just believe they have no libido. They believe they're damaged or broken. And you yes. know I've seen this for years. I've talked about it with other sex researchers that the the women oh, yeah. will come into you know clinics and they'll their marriages will be on the line. They have no libido. You know their husbands ready to leave them, and then their husband leaves them, and they're horny again because now they can fuck somebody else. Yes.
6: Exactly. They're like, whoa, you're somebody new. Who the hell are you that you just like that that woman was just flirting with you so hard or like Mm -hmm. that you looked at that person and got turned on? Okay, so what can we say? What is the thing that tends to happen? The woman starts feeling lower desire between years one and four because he's the same old, same old. Sorry, no offense. Then what does she start to do? oh, I don't like sex, but I need to have sex to make him happy instead of seeking out variety and novelty and adventure.
2: And then she's going through the motions, having sex she doesn't enjoy, which becomes a negative feedback loop and self-reinforcing and dread sets in.
6: Yes, and let's call it what Marta Miana, the sex researcher, and what sex researchers call it. They call it service sex. It's as horrible as it sounds service sex you're doing it in the service of somebody else's desire instead of your own women have to stop feeling like service sex is their life sentence
2: okay there's stop a lot of it. people out it's there not. in monogamous relationships who probably right now feel like we're attacking them or attacking monogamy we're not and we're not we're, we're supporting gonna- them Be in a monogamous committed relationship and you want it to be happy and you want sex to be a part of it or sex is – and sex is really important. People end monogamous relationships all the time because the sex isn't there anymore and the sex isn't working for them. So no sex is a threat to your monogamous relationship. You have to control for boredom. You have to – even if you're not going to fuck anybody else, you have to do something that's exciting and different and new. You have to create other forms of variety in the context of that monogamous relationship.
6: I so agree with everything that you said. And I think that one of the ways to frame this, particularly for women, given that women are the ones who get bored sooner, is feel entitled to something better than service sex. Don't just, when you feel yourself in that spiral of surrender where you're having sex to please your male partner, that's when you say to your male partner, I don't want to have service sex anymore.
2: What else can we do? Say I'm bored. People are really afraid of saying that to their partner they've been having sex with for a long time. They're afraid their partner's gonna freak out if they look at them and tell the truth. So and let say, them blame I'm us. bored. And so I, and we need to me. shake this up. That's what my you know, circling back to the caller, you know, she's in this long-term relationship. You need caller, you need to go to your partner, your husband, boyfriend, whatever it was, I don't remember, and you need to say to him, I'm bored. We need to fix that together. And that's going to mean a more sexy and exciting life for both of us where I want to have sex too, but we need to get out of this apartment. We need to get out of this bedroom. We need to get out of this bed. We need to get out of this rut and this routine. And we need to challenge ourselves. <laughs> Even if we're not fucking other people, we need to make this exciting again in a way that it was effortlessly exciting at the start. We need to now expend some effort making it exciting for me again, or it's we going need to fall to, apart.
6: Yes. Yes. And just keep that term service sex in your head and remember that it doesn't feel good to give it and it doesn't feel good to get it. It's service mm. sex. doesn't serve anyone. And excitement uh, is your evolutionary heritage and right if you're female and sexual.
2: Can we keep you on the line for a couple more calls? Yes, of course. Hello, Dan, Nancy
11: and the tech savvy at Rescue. I'm calling to see if you had any suggestions for how I can get my man off. I am a 40-something-year-old, heteroflexible, uh, cisgendered woman in the Northeast, and I am dating a late 50s heterosexual man. We have been dating for about six months, and he says that the sex is the best of his life. He loves having sex with me, but... In this entire time, he has never had an orgasm. He does have erectile dysfunction and takes Viagra to get an erection, which helps. And we have sex three or four times each time that we're together. But he just can't come. And I don't know if it's the ED, the medication, something about me. He does have kids from his previous marriage. So he hasn't always had this problem. He can sometimes have an orgasm when he masturbates, but not all the time. And he loves when I give him oral, but again, either can't come or doesn't want to. He says he's never been able to have an orgasm from oral sex. And I've offered to do like prostate massage. He's not interested in that. So I was wondering, maybe there's something I should be doing that I'm not. Maybe there's some extra techniques when I give him head that would help. Is there medication that you know that's better than Viagra for guys who have ED and... Have trouble having an orgasm, and is there a, like a toy or something um, that you think might help, given that he has this
2: one area of his penis that's especially sensitive? I have an idea of something she could be doing. She could chill the fuck out. How about that?
6: Yeah. can I talk? Yeah,
2: yeah this I'm is going. what
6: I want to say to this. Okay, Dan, this is what I want to say to this woman. I want her to listen to me very carefully. I want to tell her, I love you. you're the best girlfriend ever. You're sweet, uh, you're wonderful, you're considerate towards your boyfriend, you're so caring about his sexual pleasure, it's incredibly thoughtful, and I want you to stop it right now.
2: (laughs) Not being careful, not not being thoughtful, not being invested in his pleasure.
6: Let's talk about the very telling language that this caller is using, and I so um, adore her for, for for wanting to fix this. She says, he can't come. Is it something about me? Is there anything I should be doing? And then she says, are there toys? Are there drugs? Okay, I want to kind of reframe this entirely, Dan, Mm -hmm. in order to free up sort of both her and him. I want to reframe it from, is there anything I can do to, does your boyfriend want to do anything about this? Is this actually a problem? Because if you're enjoying fucking him, if she's into intercourse and it sounds like he's really able to do that. And if he's saying that it's the best sex of his life, even though he's not having orgasms, that's the opposite of a problem for her. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you know we need to talk about why she's experiencing this as a problem. Right. And the reason she's experiencing this as a problem is because she's the victim of a certain belief system. Right. That penis and vagina sex is real sex and that real sex is only over when the guy has an orgasm. Right. Okay, of course we want our partner to have an orgasm because that makes us feel awesome about how desirable we are, and there's a kind of power and connectedness in that. But she's focusing on him coming as the culmination of the sex act, uh, which is understandable, but it's undercutting her ability to enjoy her own enjoyment which very well might be the thing that gets him there, if anything can get him there. Well, he can get himself
2: um, there. He can masturbate. But she's so invested in her getting him off in a way that's sort of a flip on the usual script here. It's usually men who are really invested in you know the woman coming during PIV sex and his magic queen mm-hmm. is getting her off. And here we have the magic pussy. Why is my magic pussy not getting you off? He can come. Like, let him fuck you for hours. His dick can be hard for hours. And ED meds can make it easy for a guy to achieve an erection, a little bit more difficult for a guy to to actually ejaculate. He can fuck you for hours. And in the end, let him stroke his dick until he's coming and shove it back in you. Some people need a little bit more intense and focused and direct stimulation of their glands to come. Most of those people are women. Here's a case where it's a guy and she's pathologizing it.
6: Yes, she's pathologizing herself and him, and I don't want to put her down for this, because she can't help it. She has been told that her job, that sex is over when her man comes. That. Is that there's the tra- this trajectory from the heterosexual man getting a hard-on to the heterosexual man coming, that that trajectory is the trajectory of sex and that anything else that veers from that straight line from male arousal to male ejaculation isn't really sex. Mm-hmm. It is really sex. Are there things they could do? Could he try hot octopus? Right? <laughs> that partner. T- yeah, sure. You can try that. There's all kinds of stuff that you can do, but there's no substitute for taking off the pressure of yes. that traditional gender scripted BS that's holding both of them back. So I want to, you know, I want to, Commend her for her thoughtfulness, but I want to encourage her to be a little bit more selfish and um, just enjoy everything that she can get out of this. We know that it takes women somewhere between eight and twenty minutes uh, to come from intercourse, if that's your jam, if that's, that's possible. What you like. And
2: most women can't come just from intercourse alone, but the most women, who women can, can't. But if she's one of the women
6: who can, hey, this is her guy. This guy can uh, go on and on. The other thing is, you know, Sarah Hunter Murray has written a great book called not always in the mood, about how we've profiled uh, heterosexual men, right? And we kind of talked about this in the previous question. We kind of profiled them that there's something wrong if they're not like cum machines. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this guy, I hate to even call it erectile dysfunction. This guy is going through a normal life transition where erections and cumming uh, are a little more difficult. So um, I would say that she might really love Sarah Hunter Murray's book and that it might really help her step out of that penis and vagina. He has to come for it to be real sex but, narrative but while that's undercutting waits, her joy.
2: While she waits for the delivery driver to bring the book, she needs to tell him, look, if you come, if you don't come, as long as you're having a good time, fine by me. If you you know, want to masturbate with me at the end of all the fun that we're having and all my orgasms, fine with me. I'm just happy that you're happy and invested in your pleasure. Whatever oh, form and it you takes. The big, and yeah, take the pressure take, off.
6: Take the pressure off. And Dan, let's tell her something that I learned from you. And that people, my assistant is sitting here and she's like in her, in her early 30s. The people in her generation know this so much better than people a little older like me and maybe the caller. Everybody's responsible for their own orgasm. If he doesn't care about it, then stop tending to it, ask him, he seems to be saying, leave it alone. And then he's responsible for his own orgasm, and she's responsible for hers. And that can be a great and joyous and super hot situation that just frees everybody up from the pressure, the pressure of making another person come. Come on. You're responsible for your own orgasm. Stop stop worrying about a problem that he doesn't say is a problem.
2: Here's a 50-year-old pop culture reference for the kids out there. It's sort of a look-ma-no-hands problem around orgasm that people think when they get to partnered sex, it has to be all look-ma, like your mother shouldn't be looking, but whatever. But look-ma-no-hands. I didn't touch myself, and an orgasm happened for me. And that's just not the way, particularly as you get older, the way sex does work, should work, has to work. But I would say to the caller... You know, if when he masturbates and and is able to climax in your presence, if you have a sour look on your face, if you're annoyed and angry that, you know, he had to do that for himself and you weren't able to do that with your magic pussy, you're disincentivizing him having orgasms with you. You need to chill the fuck out about that. There's a lot of women on this planet who, in order to come after the oral and the PIV and the rolling around, need to bust out a vibrator. And we tell their boyfriends and husbands not to be fucking babies about it. And to make happen whatever needs to happen for her to get her off, you built that orgasm even if you had to use a tool and or allow her to use her vibrator or be you know hold her while she uses a vibrator. And that's valid and wonderful. And we're always telling guys to like, chill the fuck out. Here's a case where we get to tell the yes. woman to chill the fuck out about it.
6: Yes. And for her, one of the things that's sort of the infrastructure under her desire to give him an orgasm with her magic pussy, the infrastructure under that desire is that she has been socialized to ego tend to men all the time, even at the time when she should be the most, uh, pleasure focused and selfish, which is in a sexual encounter. So, um, I think all your advice to her is really great. And, um, I agree 100%. And I just want to say women stop ego tending and like putting yourself second, even when it comes to sex it's not your job to give him an orgasm.
2: Dr. Martin, thank you so much. Before we let you go, you are now doing your own podcast. Can you tell us about it and where people can find it?
6: Yes, I'm co-hosting it with Whitney Miller, and it's called True Sex and Wild Love, and you can find it on iTunes, um, where it's usually among the top 100 podcasts. I'd love to have people have a listen and leave us a review.
2: Dr. Wednesday Martin, pick up her book, untrue. Anybody who is interested in or indicted by the conversation we just had is going to want to read untrue and, of course, listen to Dr. Martin's podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. I always love chatting with you.
6: Thanks, Dan. You're the best. Keep on.
12: Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I'm trying to figure out how to uh, like make peace with uh, the significant others that I don't really care for of people that I really love. Especially when I start having kids with those people. You know, it's like family members, friends, they get with people who kind of suck. In a way that's not, it's not like I have to have an intervention. You know, it's not like it's abusive to that degree, I guess. But it's like I don't like them. It's like hard to listen to them talk. It's like they're shitty people with fucking shitty views and it's a downer they're they're downers you know so so i i just want some advice on how to conceptualize them i guess and minimize the attention paid to them by me but also like accept that i am gonna have to accept them them being in the life of a person i care about is not my it's not up to me it's not my life so it's I want your harm reduction approach. What's your harm reduction approach to this?
2: If you don't like the significant others of many of your friends and many of your family, maybe you're the problem. Maybe you're the common denominator and a bunch of crappy interactions. Maybe you have jealousy issues around your friendships or familial relationships that you might want to examine. That said, maybe you drew the short straw or maybe you drew several short straws and several family members and several significant friends wound up with people that rub you the wrong way. That is a thing that can happen, not laying at your feet necessarily. What do you do? Well, you limit your interactions with your the partners, the shitty partners of your friends and family that you don't enjoy spending time with. You know, you can go to dinner parties where there's a group and not have to spend any particular amount of time interacting with any one person. You can focus your attentions on the people that you – enjoy. I assume that when you see these family members, you're not just having some sort of date that's you and them, the couple, half of which you don't enjoy being around. I assume that these are group interactions. Maybe you're going to parties, maybe you're going to dinner parties. Also, you can ask your friends and family members to See you one-on-one. I promise you that these people, these significant others that you think are shitty, that you don't enjoy, can sense it and probably don't enjoy your company either. And so if the wife or the husband wants to slip out and grab coffee with this person, you, that they realize doesn't like them and they don't particularly care for either, I bet the husband or the wife isn't going to object too strenuously. And if they do, you can tell your friend, tell your family member that it's in their own best interest and the best interest of their relationship for them to spend time away from their partners. There's a body of research that shows that having independent friendships, independent of group interactions, independent of your spouse actually contributes to the health and long-term success of your relationships. You can nominate yourself to be that independent friend. All right, before we get to your response calls, your comments about the show, let's read your tweets. Kaylin Coy tweets, Wine drunk with my lady friends talking about the importance of maintaining adventure in our relationships. After listening to the Savage Lovecast for the past three plus years, I feel more than prepared for this conversation. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome, Kaylin. Please give my regards to your wine drunk friends. Maddie Ritter tweets, Listening to at fake Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast during a ride share with evangelical Christians to keep me grounded and to stop me from saying anything at all. Glad we could be there for you, Maddie. I hope you survived that ride. Also kind of hoping your headphones slipped out and the show started playing for all to hear. And finally, Rebecca Jeschke tweets, Oh, at Fake Dan Savage, we at EFF are huge fans and are thrilled you talked about the risks of ring cameras on your podcast. But you got our name wrong, frowny face emoji. We are the Electronic Frontier Foundation, not the Electronic Freedom Foundation. Three heart emojis. I am so sorry about that, Rebecca. Please relay my apologies to everyone at the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF on Twitter. Everyone, please go follow them. And while we're on the subject of last week's opening show rant, it was a mistake for me to screw up EFF's name. Also a mistake for me to urge listeners to throw away any ring devices they may have already installed in their bedrooms or around their front doors. We don't need more high-tech gadgets going into landfills or other waste streams. And right now, Ring says they're working to improve security, which has been terrible up to this point. So maybe we can just put any Ring devices we currently own back in their boxes until the security situation improves. In the meantime, anyone who's thinking about buying a Ring camera should go to EFF.org and read what to know before you buy or install your Amazon Ring camera. All right, them's the tweets. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag SavageLovecast. And now your response calls.
1: Hi Dan, this is a response to the caller in episode 694 who was wondering if she should try and be fuck buddies with her ex. I just want to say don't do it. I want to underline what you said to her and let her know that I was there and I did fuck my ex and it drew it out for two years and it was painful. And now when I think of him, even though we had two great years together, I have nothing but Bitter memories, and I think of him now as a user and an abuser, and it destroyed anything good that I could have taken from that relationship. So, I would strongly advise her not to do that, and also to say that she feels like it was the best sex she'll ever have, but she has to realize that she was 50% of that sexual connection with her ex, and she will find that again. She's bringing that into the world. I found better sex than I had with my first love, the best sex of my life since that relationship. So, I think if she has one goal for her 30th year it's just to not fuck that man.
0: Run run run. That is my advice for the gal in episode 694 who's dealing with the ex-husband who is still very much tethered to the ex-wife and she's the girlfriend. Sweetheart, you will always come in third, fourth or fifth depending on how many children he has that is a mother of his children. She likely holds all the cards. And unless you are willing to accept your point in the pecking order, this is going to be an issue. Don't step parent in a situation like that. It is a nightmare. You ultimately end up putting yourself last almost all the time. And not only is it a horrifying ego hit, it's a horrifying soul hit. You are worth more than that. And that
4: drama will never go away.
5: Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the guy in episode 694, whose girlfriend was homeschooled and raised as a Christian. I, too, was raised by hateful Jesus. My first serious boyfriend was atheist and read the New York Times. I kept my ignorant mouth shut and learned compassion and love by his example of being a decent person. I had voted for Bush in 2000, and by 2004, I switched political parties forever. I went back to school and got a BA in Black Studies, and now I'm gearing up for a PhD with a focus on white American Christianity and the hate that it perpetuates. Just wanted to share my experience and give the caller hope. There are thousands of us hot ex-bigots out there that were influenced by good and decent people.
2: And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Or even better, you can record your question or comment on your smartphone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. There is a special place in Nancy's heart for listeners who keep their questions under three minutes. It's right next to the special place in Nancy's heart for hosts who keep their responses under 10 minutes. My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, Hump, is in Oakland, Los Angeles, Miami this weekend and next. Head over to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets and find out where else we're heading this spring. Follow Dr. Wednesday Martin on Twitter at Wednesday Martin. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow the Electronic Frontier Foundation on Twitter at EFF. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth, and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week in an installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.